someone asks me what uh, the I School of Biblical Training is about or the Evangelical Institute, either one, I always respond the same way. I tell them this is what it is. It's a school of discipleship. But then the question comes, what does it mean to be a disciple? That's what we're here to do. We're, that's what the Lord gave us to do, to go make disciples of all nations. So that if we're going to do what God wanted to do, that's what we're going to be about. Now, <clears throat> in order to do that, we have to define what that is. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Now, next week after the students get back, they're going off for Thanksgiving, and they're going to come back, and next Monday night, um, I'm going to begin a short study with them. It's going, to, it's going to be real intense for a couple of days of study as to what Jesus says about what it means to follow him. What does, what's involved in following the Lord Jesus Christ? In order to get that all done, I'm going to insert that into Monday night for one week. All right. So I just, this is going to be real confusing. Those that come next week, we are not going to be talking about Isaiah. So I don't want to think we didn't forget it. It'll come back just one week, but I want to do that. Uh, and I would also say for those who might be concerned, the message is self-contained. It's a complete message all by itself, so it's not as if you have to listen to the rest in order to get what we say tomorrow or next Monday night. But it, it is important, and you can be praying for them because that's important. Getting a real grasp of where they're aiming, you know, where are we going? What are we trying to do here? What are we trying to accomplish we're doing all these different things. We are studying different things. Where are we going? That's what we have to define. That's what we're going to begin next week. So, again, just for the sake of those who have been coming right along, uh, we will finish Isaiah, and uh, we will be back in Isaiah very quickly. Okay, well, let's commit our time to the Lord and then look at Isaiah tonight. <clears throat> Father, it is our great privilege to come before you. We thank you that you are the God who seeks to save the lost, and then you come to us and you enable us as those that belong to you to serve you. And we're coming and asking you to work in all of us tonight to bring us close to who you are and to show us ourselves and enable us to trust you. To trust you as you need to be trusted, as you desire men to trust you. So we're coming and looking to you to do wonderful things for your praise and glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, in the in introduction chapter to this section, this long messianic poem, a question is asked by the Lord. And that question comes, in light of who I am, to whom would you liken me that I should be as equal? That's in chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then will you liken me? that I should be as equal. See, everybody has a concept of God, a, a, an idea of who He is, but the question that the Lord asked there is, in light of what I'm telling you I am, what are you going to put up as a picture, as an idol, as a whatever concerning me? Now, that introduces a theme which goes through the first nine chapters of this section. All right, from chapter 40 to chapter 48, there is a theme going on, and it's, a, it's the presentation of God as God is opposed, the true God, as opposed to what people think of God, the gods that they have created. And again, in, in Isaiah's terms, he, he thinks in terms of idolatry. Now, as I 
said at the very beginning of our study, there's a difficulty, in a sense, at going through the themes of Isaiah because he moves round and round. He'll come through and say a little bit about a subject, then he'll drop it for a while, and then he'll come back to it, and he'll, he'll add some more, and then he comes back to it. And so it becomes, you get it in little pieces along the way. And I thought as if in this particular matter, it's so important that we have to kind of group that up and stop to think about what is Isaiah saying concerning the matter of idolatry, and particularly with respect to who he is as the true God. Now, to make this really simple, this is a one of those type or the topical studies. What does he say concerning all this? Let's begin by reviewing what it is that God says about himself, key elements of what he says. Now, there's more that he says, but here's some key elements. And I want to say that as we go through this, I think this will greatly help us understand the pressure we're under in this world, the pressure other people are under, and what we have to be to people if we are going to bring the gospel to them. True nature of God. First thing we want to note about it all the way through this section, and if you have a time, you could do this. You could read through, want to, you can go quickly through this section with a highlighter and just highlight every time God says he's the Holy One. I am the Holy One. And I want to start with that because that defines the whole picture here. Holy is a, it's an interesting word. It's a difficult word for us to grasp because we, say, we think about what does it really mean that God is holy. And in a sense, it's not a particular characteristic of God. It's a collection of characteristics of God. But it says this about God, that God is different than anything you've ever thought of, that there is no way to compare him to anything you know. The word really basically at its root means different. He is the holy God. He is completely different. But as we said when we were thinking about Isaiah's vision in chapter 6, the very beginning, even though it's, it's completely different, it also carries this idea that he is completely above. It is a differentness which is superior in every way to anything you could say. Therefore, it's impossible for the human heart to fully grasp who God is. We can say certain things about him, but we have to back off and admit we can't grasp it completely because it's incomprehensible. That is a very deep distress to the human heart. We want so badly to be able to say this is what God is like in every detail. And when we run into a part of the description of God, such as the Trinity, we come to that. It's incomprehensible. And so we tend to want to back off of it. But that, the, that problem that arises in our heart is because God is holy. He's holy. And he is beyond where we are. But that's where I want to start. And it's important to our whole consideration tonight. But what else does he say about himself? Well, the second thing he says in, in these chapters, if you go through here, he repeats over and over again, is he is the one who created everything. Now, we can go back to chapter 40 and see that. Let me just look at that. It's one typical place. Because, again, he's going to repeat it over and over again. But listen to what he has to say about who he is as the creator of all things. He says, who has measured the waters? It's chapter 40, uh, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, calculated the dust of the earth and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. 
And he's speaking about creation here. He says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who is who is his counselor as his counselors informed him with whom did he consult? Who gave him understanding? Who taught him in the path of justice and taught him in knowledge and who informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Then you go on down to verse 25 where he says who are, who are you going to compare me to to whom then will you liken me that i would be as equal says the lord lift up your eyes on the high on high and see who has created these stars and the one who leads them forth leads forth their host by number he calls them by name because of the greatness of his power and the strength of, or the greatness of his might the strength of his power not one of them is missing so he starts with that in, in this section, numerous times, he's going to say, he is the God. He will return to that. I am the God, the creator who stretched forth the heavens. I made this earth to be inhabited. I made everything that's in here. And I, I not only made the vastness of the universe, but I also made the living feature of this universe. Right? In other words, there's life here. Have you ever, I'm sure that you did that, biological, biological studies? Nobody knows what life really is. What? changes inanimate stuff into living stuff we can describe it we can look at it but we can't recreate it we can't put stuff in a bowl and make it live we can't bottle life we can observe it but we can't see it and and, in this section, you also note that this is one of the things he says, I'm the creator of the ends of the universe, but I am also the creator of life and it is one of the great testimonies to who God is. Um, I remember when I was in biology class in high school and they talked about simple one-celled animals. One-celled animals. Simple. That was the great word. That it, it's just important to remember. Simple. With the advance in microscopes, it has been discovered that those things are anything but simple enormously complex, unbelievable in the things that are happening in them. So that the question of how could they have occurred through an evolutionary process becomes increasingly difficult to describe. But what what causes this to go from here to here? God causes it to go from there to there. Now, the reason we want to say this is because he's, he's in that speaking to men about who he is. He is the creator. All right, then we're going to say something else that it tells us in this section that God is. He's not only the creator, but he's sovereign. Now, when we say sovereign here, here's what I'm, this one we have gone over before. We're going to think about it again because it's where God is. God is the one who is controlling everything that's out there. That's why the stars aren't missing because he's in control. He not only created it and stepped back and said that's where it is. He's not like a painter who paints a painting and once it's finished, he walks away and the painting can, and the, the painter can be completely separated. The description of the word of God is that the God who created everything remained in vital touch with what's going on here. In vital touch to the point that everything that exists maintains its existence because of his continuous interaction with it. We've been thinking in the book of Colossians about the glory of the lord and the fact that he is god that in him 
the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily and tells us there that all things were made by him and they were all made for him. And in him, everything is upheld. Everything holds together. But that's only one side of it that's important, that everything is created and it exists that way. But the other side of the sovereignty, which he repeats in this book, and you get tired of hearing me say this, but he's saying it for a reason to us, is that he had a plan for this whole thing, and it's going along his plan. And he is capable and has alerted us to what that plan is before it ever came to pass. We call that, we, again, we, I don't even like to use the term because once we say fulfilled prophecy, everybody goes, you put it in a category, and we, we kind of, it's almost like we, we go to sleep on that. Fulfilled prophecy is an enormously important thing. It tells us that there is a God who has a plan, who can describe that plan to us, and can predict where things are going to go. And so you have, again, the fulfillment of what God says. Now, all the way through this book, he is is emphasizing that. That's why you'll see later on, it's going to come up next week, or not next week, but the week after that, when we get back to the book of Isaiah. He says this, before, this is when Isaiah spoke, the Babylonians were just starting to come together as a nation. Assyria was still in control of things. But he says that nation is going to come into existence and then it's going to be destroyed. It's going to be overrun by a man I'm going to raise up and his name is Cyrus. He doesn't know me and he never will know me. But I'm going to cause him to shepherd my people. I'm going to make a heathen king the shepherd of my people. And here's what he is going to do. The, after the destruction of Jerusalem, which hadn't even happened yet, he says, this, this place is going to be destroyed, but that man is going to command that it be rebuilt. How about that? So he tells them that it's going to be, that the Babylonians are coming, they'll be destroyed, the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed, a new group will come up, and they're going to be run by a man named Cyrus, and that man named Cyrus is going to tell my people what they need to do, go back and build a, a city. And it's even better than that, if you go on to the Old Testament, that shepherding of the nation has to do with this. They're going to tell them not just to go back and build Jerusalem, but they're going to go back, and he's going to tell them to go back and build a tabernacle or to build a temple. So here's a heathen king who is going to guide the people of God into what they really should be doing, worshiping. They should have been worshiping him before. Why is he going to do that? Because there is a sovereign God who has a plan. And he can tell us what's going to happen. And that's why Isaiah can go on in this book to tell us that the Lord is going to come. He's going to describe the cross in chapter 53. He's going to tell us a whole lot of detail about that, which we'll see later on. Why is that important to us? Well, that's the kind of God that he is. And he doesn't just say it so. He demonstrated it. That's one of the wonders of the Bible. It is written over a very long period of time, almost 1,500 years of time. It's not one book by one man. It's not a thought that somebody had on an evening when they wrote out their thoughts concerning religion. It's not a collection of some strange stories. It is a description of what God has done through the ages. Why is that important? Well, we're going to see in just a moment why that is important for us, but it tells us what kind of a God he is. And finally, he says in this, in this section, and we've, we've seen this already, because after he describes himself in chapter 40 at the beginning, he says this at the end. 
those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Everybody on this earth is dying. <laughs> Everything about it's dying. Every, every country that's alive on this earth, every nation that ever rises up is going to fall back down. It's inevitable until he's finished with the whole program. Every person who comes will come, be young, and if they survive youth, will become middle-aged, and then they will become old, and they will die. And for the most part, they'll be forgotten because all flesh is grass. And everything we do, all the glory we contribute to this earth is grass. But he says this, the way out of the depression that that causes is to come and wait on God. Those that wait on the Lord, those that trust in God. We talked before about what that meant. Those that trust in God, they gain a new strength. Now, that's the God that's described. He says, this is where, this is the possibility. And we'll see at the end of this this session that he opens that possibility up to the entire human race. He has created this race. He has created this world for his glory. He's created it to know him, and he invites it all to come. But they don't come. They don't come. What happens? People don't want that nor can they see the living God. So they ignore what he's done, and they create idols. And that's where the next step, Last, if you were here last week, we finished in the middle of chapter 44. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. And he says, I am the first and the last. And he goes on to say, is there any other rock? That's the last question. Rock is used in the Old Testament. Is there any other deliverer? Is anyone else that can save? Is there any other safe place to go? He says, there's none. And then he immediately steps off and has a little parody on idolatry. And I want you to look at that in just a moment. That's in chapter 44. Excuse me, chapter 44. And we'll begin reading. I just want to read the beginning of it here in verse 9. If you, again, if New American Standard has this all in prose, it's one of the few sections of the book of Isaiah which is not written in poet, poetic form. All right, and so forth. A few verses here, they have this. It says, those who fashion a graven image. This is right after, is there any other rock? I know of none, but those who fashion a graven image, that's just a a picture of God, are all futile. And And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or to know so that they are put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? There's a reason why people make, make idols. They make idols because it's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. It was the third point in there. <laughs> We're going to get to the fact of why is it important to us. But life is dangerous. It's just that simple. We all know we're going to die, right? We're supposed to know that. I mean, if, if you have any doubts about that. I mean, sometimes we do, right? Sometimes we pretend in our minds that we're watching everybody else go through this, but I'm excused from the end that it looks like it's going on. Sometimes you get this, maybe, I don't know, you've never had that thought, that maybe I'm watching a flick, a film, a video. And maybe I'm the only one, and I'm just creating this out here like it's a book, like it's a movie, like it's something, and I'm going to escape it. I'm going to just keep on going. But it's not so. (laughs) We're in this... And, and the world that we live in, in this country, it's pretty nice overall. But why was I born in this nation? Why wasn't I born in North Korea? It's not nice in North Korea. 
is not my story. Now, we could go to all, other, all sorts of other places where war-torn areas, where there is fear on every side, where there is oppression, where there is difficulty, where there is starvation, where there is, is all sorts of problems. And somehow, again, as Americans, we pretend that that isn't so, but the fact is that we, we face the same fears that they face. It can be muted a little bit because we somehow believe that everything is safe around us, but it is not safe around us, and we're, we're wise enough to look at it. We'll figure that out. But, this is this, if you don't know the real God, you're going to have to find help. People have to find help, and so they make idols. Now, he is going to go to, in, or that is Isaiah is going to go to the extreme. He's going to talk about the people that actually hammer out an image of God. Okay. A, an idol is a visible representation of the real God, as you understand him. All right. And so what happens when we have this? He goes on, and this is what they do. They don't do it. For no profit. Now, on your paper, I want to go through it and think of it, compare it to the, to the living God. The first thing I want you to note about that is they make it out of common things. Right? They make their God. Remember that the first word in the, the last section, section was what? He's holy. He's completely different. When we make an idol, what do we, what do we use? Well, in the book of Isaiah, he, he varies it. And there were different ways. He sometimes says that they make it out of stone. Sometimes it's made in this particular case. He, he talks about the making it out of wood. In another place earlier in the book, and one we'll place we'll refer to later, he talks about them hammering it out of precious metal and putting, putting um, jewels on it. Now, again, what kind of a god you're going to make is depending on what kind of resources you have. Not everybody can make a golden idol. Not everybody can preserve that golden idol because not everybody's wealthy enough. But everybody needs help. So everybody goes where they can go, and that's part of the picture here. You go where you can go. But it's made out of common, common things, things that are, are relatively common on this earth. Right? And the second thing we want to note is that uh, those idols are all created. And here we have an image. And I hope I can get this across. This is... It's, it's, a, um, it's a concept of the Old Testament that comes out here. You see, what happens when this man makes an idol? And it's the way it's pictured in this passage, and I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to tell you what it says. You can read it. It's right there, all right? It says the guy goes out, and he, he, he looks around. He wants to make his idol, so he looks for a tree, all right? He's not the wealthiest man in the world, so he looks for a tree that he has control of. It's his tree. He can cut it down. And then he chops it down. And it tells us in the passage that this process of chopping it down and getting ready to make an idol exhausts him. He can't do it all at once because he's, he's like all of us. I mean, who, wants to make a who can make a statue in one day? All right? So it's going to take him some time. That will exhaust him, and he'll have to come back to it and work on it as he has energy. We're going to skip the, the parody part of it, and we're going to get to back to the idol itself. And he finally puts it, he cuts out a log, and he puts it down in front of him. And then he carefully marks it off how he wants it to look. You see, he is creating something. But there is a picture going on here. It's a reference. It is a reference to the day when we were created. Right? 
when that is the human race was created. Remember that what happens in, in chapter 1 of the book of Genesis, it tells us that God just made man, mankind in his image. But in chapter 2, it tells us something of the, the process of Adam's creation. And in this case, the care of God enters into it. And it says that God goes down and takes common things, the mud, the dirt, the, the dust of the earth. He takes it. And then it says he fashions it. Right? And he fashions it. And what does he fashion it to do? He fashions it in his image. Right? He fashions it in his image. And then he'll do something here to it. And what is it he'll do? He'll take that, he says, and he takes Adam. And I don't know how you want to picture it. It's a picture, all right? God is not that small. But anyway, we got God with, this, with Adam in his, in his hands. And he says, and he breathed into him. And that, that dirt became a living being. Now back off to our story here. This guy has this, this thing in front of him. And what's he doing? He's fashioning it. And if you will look at that passage, he fashions it into the shape of a man. That's what it says in this passage. He fashions it into the shape of a man. And then he takes time to carve it out. It's an idol. It's been created. It's from common things. And it's been made by this man for his purpose. Now, why does he make it? Why does he make it? What, what's happening here? He makes it for his glory. Right? Why, is he <laughs> Why did you need to God? Because you've got a plan. Or this is, I'm talking about him. That man has a plan for his life, and he's got difficulties he has to face, and he's going to need help to get his will done. His purpose is completed. His honor, to, isn't, that, isn't that interesting? Because why, were, why was I created? Why was Adam created? He was created for the glory of God. He belongs to God. Again, that's one of those features we were talking about in the book of, of Colossians when concerning Jesus. All things were made by him, and all things were made, it says, it doesn't say it this way, it's a paraphrase of it, all things were made for him. I find that's one of the more difficult things to get across to young people anymore is it's the culture has so much oriented towards self, towards me and me time and me, 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 that we don't get the idea that from the word go, from the day I first screamed on this earth, you know, when they hit me in the, you know, in the old days, and I started to, to breathe in and out, I did not belong to myself. I was created by God and for God. That anything I did with my life that wasn't in accordance with his plan was wrong from the word go because I am not my own. That's before I was converted I wasn't my own because he made me. And the breath that I breathe is a breath that's derived from God, not, not of my own. Right? We are his. That's, a, that's a, quite a concept. Well, now this man is creating this God. Why? Or he's creating this, this God. This God which he is making. All right, is made so that he can stand it up and say, save me. Now, he's not going to ask, and this is, uh, this is the idolatry of the Old Testament, if you don't know, he is not going to be asked to be saved from his sins. He's going to be asked to be saved from sickness and from hard times economically and from family troubles and from bad people. 
he is going to be asked so that he can continue to have a peaceful existence on this earth. That's why people pray to idols. It isn't so that they can get sin off of their back. That makes sense. He has li- he's created this. He's created the God. But when he gets done, remember, it's this very important. He can't breathe life into it. And that's where the, the next feature, it says there that on the, on the page, on the back side, when you get there, it says it's lifeless. Let's go over to chapter 46, and we see this in a, in a particular, this is another place where Isaiah is describing this. This is another one of his idle descriptions. All right, so here we go in <coughs> chapter 46, verse 5. God asked that same question here that he had asked before. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? All right, how are you going to make a God? You're making these gods. How would you do that? It says, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale. Hire a goldsmith is a much, much wealthier man than our last man who was just carving wood. And he makes it into a God. And they bow down and they worship it, right? It was a pile of of metal and stones before. (laughs) And they fashioned it. And when they get finished making it exactly the way they wanted it to look, and in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, they all tell us the same thing. That when they make that idol, it will look a whole lot like the idol maker that's what we say. It is made in the image of the maker. It will bear resemblance to what they themselves want and believe is strength. There's a book of Habakkuk. It's, it's put in a kind of a funny way. It says that it's, it's speaking about the Babylonians at that particular point, about their skill. And it compares their skill in fighting to a, a a fisherman who goes out and throws a net and catches fish in his net. So he says, and that they're, they're, they're taking over the world with these nets. And then Habakkuk says this, therefore, because that's so, they take their nets and they worship them. All right? Because those nets represent what they consider to be a worthy man and a worthy nation. It's, it's great if you would have control of the whole world and these things are helping us, so we're going to worship this way. Now, that's, it's a figure. That's not their God. Their God was not a, a net. But it describes how we get our gods. It's, it's a thing that gets us what we want, and then we worship it. Right? So that's what he says is going on. Well, let's go back to the passage. Though. So they down and worship it. Then, this is Isaiah and make, making fun of them, then they lift it up upon their shoulders and carry it. Now, he's not talking about them having a parade here, although that is, that's done. I have seen the pictures. I've seen the literal. Where people take their images that are, are there, they're taking care of them, and they put them on their shoulders or on a little cart or on, a, on something, and they walk around, and everybody has a big time. But here he's just talking about, well, once you got it there, then you got to take it home. And it can't walk home on its own. It has no life. So you put it on your shoulders because you are the life. That's what he's talking to them about. You are the life of your idol. You can't breathe it into it, so you've got to do it for him. All right, they set it upon their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. 
doesn't move. You can count on the fact that your God will still be there tomorrow morning, unless somebody steals it. In this case, somebody could steal it. You would have to protect your God. But in this case, he, he's talking about you just put it there. It will be there tomorrow because he can't get up and walk away. And there's thousands of examples of that on the earth. Now, <clears throat> it does not move from its place. And then he says this, and that's the last thing that's on your list. Not only is it lifeless, but the gods he's describing here are completely impotent. That is, they have no strength to deliver. So he says this, though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from distress. That's why you created it, right? That's what he says. It was created for that purpose. Now, in the book of, or in chapter 45, as he goes through that description, he says something else. It, it does get kind of, I mean, he's, he's pretty rough on the people that are doing this. He says, in the process of making this idol, what you do is you cut the tree and you say, this part of the tree would really be what I need for my, my statue. But that's going to leave leftover here, and I need lunch. So I take the other, and again, this is all just a picture. It's not, and I chop this part up, and I put it down and make a fire out of it, and I cook my food on it. And my hands are cold. I, I get, so over here, I'm just using it. And then I carve out the rest of this. And then when I get finished with that, I set this part up. I burned the other part, right? And I set this part up, and then I fall on the ground and worship a, a block, which is what it says in the passage here, a block of wood and say, save me. Save me. But it can't save it. Now, the question comes to us, now again, when you're not involved, why would anybody continue this? Why don't they get this? <laughs> why don't people, why would anybody continue to serve a block of wood? When you're not involved with it, you can see it's a block of wood. That's why people tend to laugh at other people's idols. All right? Why does it continue? And Isaiah tells us that, and this is important again to the whole book of Isaiah. So I want to go to chapter 45. Now we're going to down to verse 18. It's the end of the section. All right, after he says it, man calls on it to, for it to deliver him. He says this, they do not know, nor do they understand. For he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. Something happens to a man when he calls on an inanimate situation, an inanimate thing to be his God. And what God says here is when that takes place, God, this is, this is God who's acting here. He smears across their eyes. That's, that's thought that I'm, I'm going to blind them to what's going on. No one recalls, nor is there any knowledge or understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire and have also baked bread over the coals. I roast meat and I eat it. Then I make rest, the rest of it into an abomination and I fall down before a block of wood. It doesn't cross their mind. Why doesn't it cross their mind? Because they're blinded to it. They're blind. And then he goes on to say this. This is important again for us tonight. He feeds on ashes. That's the man who makes the idol. A deceived heart has turned him aside and he can, cannot deliver himself nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand? 
he can't get out of this cycle. Right? He can't get out of it. This is, this is where the seriousness of idolatry comes in. Jeremiah hammers this very hard, that idolatry deceives a person into the place where they forget how dumb what they're doing is, how completely insane it is to go out and arbitrarily pick a rock or pick a tree or pick anything else and shape it yourself and then ask it to do anything other than sit there. But when a person does that, when they, they enter into this, they become blinded. Right now, the important thing of all this for us, we think um, most of us have never lived in a place where this was literally done. You may have been to, you may have traveled to places where it was done, but we haven't been in a place where it is literally done. And yet God is implying, he's going to in the rest of this section, that the entire human race has fallen for this. Because what is the, how does that apply to me? What does that have to do with my own life in this country where I don't make, I don't carve out idols and sit them around. I don't carve out images and say this is God. In the New Testament, the writer speaks about idolatry, particularly in, again, we'll think about it in both Colossians and Ephesians. He calls two things, it's interesting, two, two attitudes, he says, are both idolatry. One is greed, one is immorality. Greed and immorality. And he, he says those that fall into this, they amount to, he says, idolatry. Now, how could that amount to idolatry? Well, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go to one of them. I'm going to take the money because I think it's the easiest one. Have you ever thought through what an incredible act of faith money is? I mean, how, how it all works out. In one sense, it's a great big joke we play with each other. Right? Because, again, I, just, I think I have, they have two different kind of bills here. I think, yeah, yeah, this one says five. And this one says one. One what? This is a piece of paper. And this is a piece of paper. And this one says one, and this one says five. Now, I don't have one, but if I had one that said 100 on it, that would be even better, right? But it would be. And if I took a match, I won't, I won't. But if I took a match and burned this one and this one, they would burn at the same rate. There's really no difference between those two, except this one says one and this one says five. But if I go to the store they take, make a difference between these two. One says one, one says five. Have you ever really thought, what's behind all that? Have you ever asked yourself, in reality, I mean, they, you can go through the economic class and they'll tell you why. Why it's possible, I think it was in 1987, I think that's when it happened, when they had that burp in the stock market, <laughs> and Sam Walton lost a billion dollars in a day. You say, what are you? <laughs> Who's kidding Who? Nothing happened. The stock market burped. Sam Walton had everything the day after that he had the day before. The same people worked for him. The same stock was in his warehouses. 
what's going on here? What's happening here? What is the value of money? The value of money <laughs> is what we determine. We created that stuff, and we, we, we pretend that it has great value, right? And there's a deception to that, Richard, because people think, this is a bad thing, that if I can get enough of that, if I could get enough of those things, that my life would be better. Isn't that true? That my life would be better if I could just get enough of it. And they're deceived. And, and it's all pretend. It's all pretend. We have inflation, and this thing wouldn't be worth much more tomorrow. Not worth it that much today, but anyways, got the idea. But we pretend, and we talk to each other, and we tell each other it's so. Now, what am I? Why am I bringing that up? Because we got we got blinders on. The whole country's got blinders on. We think it's there. It's not there. It's a game we play, and when they have the burp, somebody says, I don't want to play anymore, and, <laughs> and then it takes years to put it back together again. Why is one thing worth so much? Why is a bar of gold worth money? Have you ever asked yourself that? You can't do anything with it, really. As a chemistry major. Gold is practically unresponsive to everything. That's one of the reasons you can have it. It'll still be there tomorrow because it doesn't rust. It doesn't do anything. It's hard. So you can't make it into anything besides that. It's very soft metal. I guess you can make fillings out of it. All right. But it's awfully soft metal. You can't make parts for anything out of it. But somehow in the history of mankind, it has become something that people kill each other over. But it has no real value. And you see, we can laugh at the people with the trees, all right? We can laugh at the way they respond there, but the fact of the matter is we're exactly the same as human beings if we don't see what? That there is no hope in money. People think if they had a stack, if I, if I had a stack of, of gold bars up to here, I'd have it made for life, wouldn't I? Well, what difference would it make to this graying hair? It would still keep on graying. My appointment with death is still secured. All right, I can't buy my way out of that. I can't make bad people into good people around me. I can't put enough things around. I can't keep the germs away. I can't. <laughs> we think it's there, but it's not there. Now, all I'm saying is this is the deception of idolatry. And it's, it's true of the whole human race, whether they're making things that they fall down before or they just fall down in their heart like we as, as America. This is the primary thing. There's two things that America falls down to. One is, is money and the other is sex, which are the two things which Paul says amount to idolatry. Impurity and greed, which amount to idolatry. If that isn't a description of the American way of life, I don't know what is. Now, but we don't see it as that. Now, here's what, here's what the Lord says. That's true for the human race, and there's nothing they can do about it. They can't extract themselves from that. And so he came to deliver. This is a lot of what the book of Isaiah is about. Because you can't get out of that, and I can't get out of that, and the idol worshipers in the places where they actually have idols can't get out of it. So what's the hope? The living God comes down to extract us from that. So that last line there is very important. 
they can't escape this. They cannot, they can't get out of the program. So God comes. Now, if when he comes, he's going to suggest to you, you do a number of things. Guess what they are? First of all, again, it, it may not come in this order, but if I want to get out of my wrong concepts about God, and the gods are the gods I create, they're the things I think are true that aren't true. There is one true and living God. He is what he is. He loves what he loves. He hates what he hates. I can't rearrange that by saying, I don't think God really cares about that. That's the same as me carving off here and saying, I think God should look like this. He is who he is. So what's he going to do? And that's the book. He's going to tell you, first of all, take a look at creation. You want to escape that? Take a look at what God has made. Pay attention to it. It's interesting that with all the stars out there, we kind of have, we've blotted them out. We don't even look up there. We don't look at what's going on. The reason why that's important is those, uh, the, his works are studied by those that love him. That, that's the, the, if you seek him, you're going to study those works because it's going to give you a feeling for the greatness of who he is. Second thing he says, this, though, he says that's why he gave the testimony of the word of God the way it's given. I had to ask, and I think I said this earlier in the course but, or in our studies, but when I first taught Old Testament survey, I asked a question, why is it that God took so long? Why are there thousands of years between the beginning and when Jesus comes? Why did so many people come and go? Well, I have to come conclude that God being wise did it the right way. But one of the things it has, the advantage it has for you and for me is this. All this time, God was speaking and saying, I'm going to do this. 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 And as time went on, he had done that, and he had done that, and he had done that. So that I have a book here tonight, which, and we've gone over this many times, but I have a book here tonight, which tells me what God said he was going to do way back there and what he did, and what he said that he was going to do a little bit later and what he did. And it will tell you that God is faithful. Faithful to what? Faithful to his word. He will keep every bit of his word. If I want to be delivered from idolatry, I have to understand that, hey, look, this book contains unbelievable amounts of information that was given before the fact. There's a reason to listen to it because of that. There's no other book on the face of the earth that is like it. You don't have to study 500 books to find out which one was the right one. There is only one that was created that way, which was created over time, describing again and again what God would do, all the way up to a point where there was a prediction of, a, of the death and, bear, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that he could come to this earth and say, I'm going to go through this. I'm going to, be, I'm going to die, but I'm also going to be raised from the dead. Now, imagine that. And it came, comes to pass. Now, why is that important? Not just so we can all thrill in fulfilled Scripture. All flesh is grass. It's glory like the flower of the grass. Grass withers, flower fades. But what? The word of our God stands forever. You want to know who he is? It's written here. But you're going to have to buy it for what it says. Can't rearrange it. We can't take it and shape it. I can't make God different than this is. And I will tell you, I've, maybe I've said that before, but one of the greatest fears I have getting up here and speaking 
is the fear that I won't say accurately what he said. The greatest problem I could do is to say that he said it and it wasn't him. This isn't the way he is. So I, I, I like to do it. I don't like this kind of way I'm doing it tonight. We're kind of serving. I like to be right there in the past where you can look down there and say, yeah, that's exactly what it did say. Because that's what we want to find out is what did he say because here he has told you who he is. And here's the end of what, why he tells you all that. Why is it that he left us with creation? Why did he make that vast universe? Why is it out there? It's out there so that people who have their eyes smeared could begin to see past that. And why was the word of God given the way it was? It's so that the people who were blinded could begin to have that pulled back. But then they've got to look and see what does it say. And here's what it's going to say. Now, when you get hold of the stupidity of trusting in things here which can't help you with your real problems, chapter 44 or 45, Verse 22, it's on the back side of your paper. Here's what he says. This is where he's leading to in the entire first nine chapters. Turn to me. How about that? Turn to me. Turn to me and be saved. Who's, who's this for? Not just for the Jews. Not just for the Jewish nation. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is no other. I am God. And there is no one else. There is no one, nowhere else to turn. Your money can't save you. Your, your fleshy experiences can't save you. No idol can save you. Education can't save you. There is nothing that can save you except for the God who created you, who you were made for and who you rebelled against. He can, he can bring you back. He can set it right. Set it right not only on this earth, but set it right for all eternity. It's a tremendous passage. It's real important to us because we have a tendency in our heart to replace God with something. An image that we create, and particularly in the United States, an image we create in our minds of who he really is. He is what he said he is. I'm the beginning and the end, the first and the last. There is no Savior beside me. There is no one else. But he isn't hiding that. He's expressing it to us. So Isaiah, or Isaiah was greatly concerned. Those people understand. This is, he's speaking to the Jewish people who at that time did not have idols. They had already gone in captivity. They'd be gone. They're going to be delivered from that. They don't have the idols anymore. But even though they've given up the idols, they have to come back, turn to the real God. Turn to me. Be saved. All the ends of the earth, Jews, Gentiles, all of us. For I am God, and there is no other. Okay, well, let's pray. Father, we're coming and asking you to show us yourself. We thank you for creation. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the extent you've gone to to, to, to show us the truth of your word. We're coming tonight and asking you to show us yourself every person in this room that you will open the eyes of the blind as you did for so many we come and trust you for it we pray in jesus name amen